Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2019 POD Partnership Opportunities and Drug Delivery Conference, focusing on clinical and industry perspectives on subcutaneous delivery. The panel was moderated by Roche's Dr. Bieta Bittner and included representation from Bingham and Women's Hospital, Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, AstraZeneca, and Mass General Hospital. The 2020 POD event will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I think this was a very exciting panel on drug delivery in general. What do we need in the future? And now we are more specific, going on to, into a, a very specific topic. The topic is formulation and device lifecycle management for biopharmaceutics. And really the focus is on subcutaneous administration. So for introduction, my name is Beate Wittner from Hoffmann La Roche. I'm working in Basel in the Global Product Strategy Department, and we oversee the entire pipeline for drug delivery opportunities and really specifically also needs on how can we improve our molecules with respect to drug delivery. One focus for us is really also subcutaneous dosing. And um, as you know, biopharmaceuticals, they have to typically be administered parenterally, many still intravenously. There are um, areas already today where um, we can go sub like multiple sclerosis, like diabetes, um, rheumatoid arthritis, and also in oncology, we now have a number of high-volume biopharmaceuticals on the market. So the next step we really look into, can we, with specific technologies, devices, enable a flexible care setting, which means that patients can, if a molecule is safe and well tolerated, not only receive treatment in the hospital or office or infusion center, but potentially also in the home setting, also including self-administration. And with this, I would like to introduce my panel today, and I'm really happy that we also have like a pharmacist and an MD here, because we always focus on what are actually the needs. We don't just look at what are opportunities, we want to really address current and future needs. And for the panelists to introduce, um, I have here Mary Noffel. She is a, a PharmD and a hematology oncology pharmacist at the Brigham and Women's um, Hospital here in Boston. So welcome, Mary. Thank you. Then also we have an MD here, medical doctor. It's David Ting. He is an associate clinical director for innovation at the MGH Cancer Center and also an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. We have um, Anand Subramoni from AstraZeneca. He's a PhD and also a VP, and he is responsible for external innovation and novel product technologies. And then... Thanks, Anand, for joining. And then we have Manuel Sanchez-Felix, also PhD from Novartis. It's uh, the Institute for um, Biomedical Research. He there is a senior fellow, uh, fellow and in charge of the Novel Delivery Technology Group. So also welcome, Manuel. Look forward to the discussions. Yeah. And also he is actually a founding member of um, our subcutaneous industry consortium that we also want to introduce to you. And in case you are interested, you can really approach one of us or other members of this consortium. So I'm starting with you, Mary. Um, maybe you just introduce a little bit what your role is at the, at the hospital pharmacy. 
Sure. So good morning, everyone, and it's truly a pleasure to be here. Um, so my name is Mary Knopfel, and I am a hematology-oncology clinical pharmacy specialist at the Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center here in Boston. I work closely with the leukemia and the bone marrow transplant um, services, and at my role, I provide direct patient care, assess patient medication re regimens, and provide um, recommendations to the health care providers and patients. I also sit on several committees one of them is the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Oncology Subcommittee, and my research interests include leukemia and bone marrow transplant. Thanks, and, and thanks for this introduction, and I assume you work also with IV and sub-Q formulations? Correct. So this is really a big part of your daily life? Yes. Yeah, okay, great. And we talk a lot about like that subcutaneous administration could re reduce the resources, the cost in the hospital pharmacies. What's your perspective and experience here in, in this area? So, um, so as you know, like the there is a definite impact of using subcutaneous um, administration compared to the IV. So, from a pharmacy or hospital pharmacy workflow perspective, um, our IV admixtures can require time. So that's time that um, is spent in preparing the medication. So that can range from anywhere around like 20 minutes to one hour, depending on whether, you know, your product is either in powder form that needs reconstituted or you just um, have to further and then further dilute it or if it needs to be thawed if it's frozen. Um, so this is all time that is consumed in the preparation process compared to your subcutaneous formulations where now um, the approved products um, come in a fixed dosing um, strategy uh, based formulations, and that minimizes the time for preparation. So basically, you just need to kind of deliver this medication um, to the patient. Yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, do, I think you mentioned you also are somehow in contact also with patients. And do you see an impact like on convenience, quality of life? So definitely you can hear some feedback from convenience perspective. So, you know, time spent at the clinic, um, most of the biotherapeutics um, at least take, you know, on average, some of them need to be infused for an hour, at least an hour after, you know, a first successful IV administration. So, for example, rituximab, um, usually the first administration needs to be IV. That can take around four hours. Um, and if that's successful, then you can, the subsequent doses can be administered um, uh, faster, but still it's around um, 90 minutes um, compared to your sub-Q, which, you know, ranges from five to 10 minutes. So patients, um, this reduces treatment burden, they get to leave sooner and continue, um, go on with their lives faster. Yes. Okay, I think Manuel, you mentioned you also had a question to Mary. I, I guess what you heard in the previous talk, there's a lot of discussion around the future, but we're also very conscious of some of the constraints we put on ourselves. And... Um, I think we've had a number of exchanges on email around palliative care and how different that is in terms of this acceptance of subcutaneous and combination treatments. And I wonder if you could expand upon that. Um, so I think in the, in the perspective of, you know, the use of the on-body injectors uh, for palliative care, I think, um, at least at our institution, uh, I think one driver is, you know, cost on top of like the efficacy. So for example, um, Nulasta, uh, we have the on-body injector. 
However, at our institution, the inpatient side, we do not carry this product. And this is mainly driven by the fact that this is uh, more costly than the um, daily sub-Q injections of filgrastam, for example. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., I think the, pay, the insurance model differs in the sense that on the inpatient side, basically you are billed per the preset ICD codes. And so it does not matter necessarily... Um, it, so there's a certain limit or a quote that they give, and whether you exceed that or not, do not exceed that, this is what the hospital is getting paid. So in this setting, your hospital is really going to look for the most effective and the most cost-benefit um, agent compared to your outpatient setting where they do get billed per item or service provided. So you will see, for example, at Dana-Farber, we do carry the on-body or inje auto-injectors um, versus on the inpatient side, we prefer to use filgrastam because the patient's already staying in the hospital. So to just give this one-time injection that's going to last them for a prolonged period of time is not necessarily in the best interest um, within our policies. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mary. Now linking on in David, maybe just you also briefly introduce what your role is currently in the hospital. <clears throat> sure. Um, so I'm a medical oncologist uh, focused mostly in GI oncology at the MGH Cancer Center. Uh, but I primarily spend most of my time uh, running a lab, translational research lab, and developing sort of uh, novel sort of biology and therapeutic targets. Uh, I've spun out a couple companies from my lab. One of them was Panther Therapeutics. I think that's why I'm here, uh, which is a local delivery device vehicle for uh, pancreatic cancer. So I think about delivery a lot. I was raised in the, the Langer lab when I was a young MIT undergrad, so... Um, you know, in terms of these questions, I think they're, you know, significant for the field. Um, mm. Yeah. When, when having molecules with both in the subcutaneous and intravenous administration uh, route available, what would you say, what is the impact on resources, the impact um, on the time um, patients yeah. need to spend in your hospital? What's yeah. your general experience? I think, I think, like, the field is now moving towards how do we keep patients uh, home? And I think that that is driven by a wide variety of factors. One of them is space. You know, our, our, the MGH, uh, historically, cancer was not the, the biggest uh, sort of uh, inpatient population, but over the last 20 years, obviously, that's changed. We're, in fact, building a whole new facility um, in the middle of Boston, right near the, uh, the original hospital, uh, and the vast majority of that will be cancer inpatient. Uh, the Dana Farber is going through the same thing. I know this from, from my colleagues over there. You know, the number of admissions is just going to continue to increase as our population is aging, especially the uh, baby boomers. So the number of cancer patients that will, that will need uh, sort of inpatient level of care is going to increase. So that's just not sustainable because we just don't have enough personnel to, to deal with that in terms of physicians, nurses, and others. Um, so we are moving towards how do we do this at home? Um, that's already started now um, as part of a standard cancer dream team. One of our sub-teams is moving towards uh, non-invasive monitoring of patients at home with a full staff. We're giving, uh, deploying hydration to those patients at home so that they don't have to come into the infusion unit or the emergency department. So, yeah. so I think these sort of movements um, indicate that sub subcutaneous delivery is, is going to be a major factor for a lot of these patients that we yeah. can do at home. So I was, just a quick question, I was talking to Alan from Merck earlier on, and he said that part of this space problem is due to our success. Yeah. In other words, the 
the patients are surviving longer, staying on the medication. Is that your observation? Yeah, I think that that's part of it, but it's also a population problem. Um, you know, the, just the sheer numbers of patients with cancer are, are going to increase. Mm. And our success is, you know, is great. You know, I think, um, you know, pancreas cancer is a, a great example of a cancer that um, is the most lethal cancer. Mm. We've moved towards aggressive early uh, treatment with fulfurinox. It's a very heavy chemotherapy to give. And those patients often come back in for hydration or just not doing well. Um, and so that's, you know, because we're pushing like that and cancers like that, we want to try to figure out how do we deploy medications uh, for them at home because, you know, they don't want to come in either uh, at like two in the morning or something like that. But if we can... I guess one more question, yeah. if that's okay. I'm go ahead, Laura, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> you know me. It's, it's taken like from your time. Questions. It's not um, I, I was really surprised by some of the publications indicating with hydration, in particular children yeah. and the elderly, where it's very difficult to actually find a vein, which yeah. is another complication, that uh, there have been cases of sub-Q of one liter, two liters, right? Yeah. and also nutritional. So we sort of put these constraints of one mil, but in actual fact, volumes can be substantially larger, but over a longer period of time, and the inconvenience factor. Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, that, that's, that's a huge, uh, you know, the, the human body is able to tolerate a lot, um, and, uh, you know, often in the emergency setting, we just try to get fluid into the patient, no matter how we can get it in. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's important to, to understand is, is that um, you know, things like hydration and other sort of supportive care things get people to stay on chemotherapy or even phase one clinical trials longer. Mm. That's a fact. Yeah. Um, so, so is that one of the, you obviously deal with, uh, you're managing their condition. Could you sort of just expand upon some of the common observations you make in terms of where you have to do some intervention and how frequent they are with the sub or... Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the the biggest things are are really um, inability to eat. So yeah. people are nauseous. That's number one. So sort of having long acting anti nausea medications is a is a huge um, area. Yep. Um, I think that's a thing that's important for palliative care too. So end of life care, which is a growing problem not just in cancer but in other diseases. Um, I think that. Um, you know, being able to um, provide maximal sort of support for a patient as they go through chemotherapy is, and targeted agents or even novel agents like immunotherapy, those are all things that have evolved. I mean, you know, immunotherapy, is, as we all know, is like one of the greatest revolutions in, in cancer right now. Um, there's a special inpatient medical service just for those patients. And there are certain attendings that have to deal with that. So there's a lot of push towards you know, how do we try to mitigate some of these things before they come into the hospital. Um, so I think that that's, that's definitely the future, is if we can you know, figure out ways of managing symptoms before they get severe enough that you require admission and you're, you require an NG tube or some other sort of significant intervention to overcome that, um, you know, that's, that's where the field uh, should be moving.
Another question to home administration, maybe looking in the future and also what is very interesting for the colleagues from the large volume patch pump device development companies here. So could you imagine in the future you have like treatment initiation in the hospital, you have a ready to use high volume device and the molecule is safe and well tolerated, that you could shift treatment to the home setting with the caregiver or even the patient self-administering? What's your view on, on this, assuming it's monotherapy, potentially adjuvant treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's something we already kind of do with infusion. Um, mm -hmm. So we do continuous infusion 5-FU commonly. Okay. And we send them home, they stay I mean, uh, for, with radiation, sometimes mm -hmm. six weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're hooked up. I mean, if you could convert all that into a sub-Q system, that would be amazing instead of doing a continuous infusion. Yes. Um, the one issue in cancer, obviously, is sometimes you need to turn it off. Um, yeah. And sometimes you need to have a rescue. Um, this is one of the issues with, like, you know, long-term anticoagulation, which is like Lovenox or, or Fragmin. Um, you know, you can't have something that has a half-life of, like, 10 yes. days. You do need something yep. shorter. But, you know, the point is, is that, as, as you're pointing out, like, I think, I think if I could give chemo and they could finish it at home rather yes. than being an inpatient, yep. that would be great for everyone. So so. This means there is really a role also for these patch pumps um, also in the, in the future and maybe now already. And I know you are heavily working on these systems. So now I would like to link in you, Anand, and maybe also just briefly talk about your role at AstraZeneca. Sure. Thank you. My name is Anand Subramani. Um, I lead the external innovation and uh, new product development technologies within AstraZeneca. Uh, so we are looking beyond uh, the standard modalities like uh, antibodies and proteins. We are looking at uh, new areas, and a lot, lot of external innovation is involved in this. Uh, particularly looking at uh, AABs, cell therapy, and other areas. So, um, drug delivery is, uh, is really a, an exciting topic, and we could really use a lot of in, uh, innovation in that area. So, before my current role, I built the device and drug delivery team in AstraZeneca Legacy Medimmune. It's so gratifying to see some of the products uh, on devices that we worked on have now coming to fruition. Uh, SubQ has been really challenging in my prior role uh, at Novartis. We look at uh, Starting from bioavailability improvements in drug in, in, across the sub-Q route of administration into devices and a number of things. So, uh, yeah, so clearly we are looking mm -hmm. at a number of options uh, beyond what is the minimum table stakes. So that's, yeah. that's my and, and from your perspective, what, where do you see the most recent very relevant developments in subcutaneous delivery, also including devices? Yeah, I think the device, as you mentioned, uh, uh, some brand names uh, a few minutes ago, uh, there's a recent um, announcement, I think last month, we have a life cycle management of the particular product that you mentioned is being signed. And also oncology is a, an area that uh, a lot of subcute devices are going to be useful. Because, I mean, we are going to be talking about life cycle management today. Um, I mean, Alan mentioned this morning about some of the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors and how combinations are going to be uh, coming into the place for checkpoint therapy. Uh, and this is an area where uh, I think uh, devices and also uh, connectivity and some of those tools are going mm -hmm. to be really, really useful. Yeah. And also immunotherapy, there we, we deal a lot with combination treatment now, more than one molecule. And like imagining two molecules that are dosed uh, based on the patient weight, like intravenous infusion, this can be very complex. I think, how do you see the role of sub-Q administration and devices 
for yeah. this combination therapy. Are going, uh, moving away from the mix per kick dosing to mm. most of the very standardized dosing regimen. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There is combination between small molecules and uh, large molecules and also radiation with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So uh, we need modular systems. If it is devices, we need modular systems where we could plug and play, whether it's a small molecule combination with, uh, with, with a biologic or vice versa. But programmability is the key. Uh, mm -hmm. How can we really program maintenance dose versus some of the uh, doses that we can provide? And, and again, this is an area where compliance and monitoring adherence is really important because we also heard this morning about reducing the chair time. So if you're really leaving people, uh, moving them away from the hospital or a clinic site uh, into home, then maybe technologies that can really track their adherence is a must. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and not from a policing point of view, but more from an enabling therapy mm -hmm. point of view. Yes. Yeah. What do you think are the most important connected tools, like adherence trackers, dosing reminders, um, systems that can track whether the full dose is administered, or even systems that have a dialogue between the healthcare professional and the patients. What's your view on this? I think in, in almost all of them in, in different different ways, because there are certain patients who would really require some some reminder aspects, but there's always a dialogue between healthcare provider and patient is a must, especially if you're moving the therapy away. I think uh, some of the uh, broader collaboration that we are seeing on uh, for one platform device with a number of companies these days, I think it really begins to tell us the story that people are thinking along the same lines, that we need to have a centralized system where the platform device can enable that communication between uh, the patients and the caregivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe David, to what extent is this a reality already, using like to connected tools, like have a remote co dialogue with patients? Yeah, so that's already happening. Like I said, there's, there's actually a, a clinical trial ongoing in pancreas cancer where we are working with a company, and I'm blanking on the company's name right now, uh, I think it's Medically Home, um, but basically they have non-invasive monitoring of the patient. Um, there's, this is sent to a central hub where there's either a physician or a nurse practitioner equivalent, and then if it requires, it will go straight to the attending of, uh, who takes care of that patient. So it's, it's definitely a different model, but the way to sort of think about it is, is sort of like a central station monitoring many patients out there, similar to what we do on the inpatient side, but they're in their home. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is the future, because yeah. um, if it was my mom or my dad, that's what I would want. Yeah. And, one yeah absolutely. Chronic disease space like diabetes, for instance, that's very common now. Yeah. There are uh, tools that really tracks how patient is using uh, mm -hmm. their uh, subkit devices. I think it's, it's a matter of time that it's going to be available for other uh, non-chronic therapies. Yes. And what would be the, like, the ideal patient type using such tools? Because I think not all patients may want to use it. From your perspective, which patients would you prefer providing such tools to? I think it depends. Like, so there's some patients you would want something to monitor them and that, you know, it's usually uh, the differences in what we think patients can do is, is, is usually dependent on what kind of support structure they have. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of family members, it's a very different situation than uh, if you're alone. Yes. When you're alone, yeah, we probably want to monitor you a little closer yes. than, um, 
than if you have a bunch of family members. But having a bunch of family members, the good thing is when you have that kind of connectivity, it's easier to deploy that kind of technology because um, it's typically maybe not even their, their son or daughter, but their grandson or daughter that knows how to use the device better than any of them can. So yes. um, I think that that's, um, yeah. So I think that those are the things that yeah. we consider is, you know, what is the social impact of, of yeah. this, this type of technology uh, more than anything else. So when you look at this situation, the transition, what, what do you see as the key benefits? Is it, do, are you seeing the, um, the family members actually being part of it and understanding it or, and, and then being more at home? Or what are the things that you see that they get, they're gaining out of all of this? I think, I, think, uh, I think with everything in medicine, it's about feeling comfortable mm. uh, for the family and the patient. Um, and most of, most of our job as, as care providers is to, to allay the anxiety of patients. You know, we, we know what we need to do in terms of giving these patients their therapies, but sometimes the worst part of being a patient is, is not knowing. It's not, it's not actually the treatment or the surgery. It's just, I don't know what's happening. Um, and so I think uh, these devices enable patients to sort of feel, and their families to feel like they have a better understanding of what's going on. I think that's the general move with, the, again, the entire healthcare field. There's like these uh, chatbots, mm. you know, these, these uh, things that uh, other industries have used to try to educate patients. Uh, without having a live person, but this you know artificial intelligence <laughs> chatbot. Um, but you know the, that's why they're important. It's it's more you know, I think as we increase the number of patients, one of the things we we are starting the physicians are starting to feel is that we're losing that connection and relationship with patients because we just don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that some of that can be mitigated by not all of it, by you know sort of having these types of uh, ways of communicating with physicians uh, more effectively. Yeah. And, and one topic we discuss a lot in the area of like subcutaneous connected devices is really, so imagine there is a tool, there is a patient diary, the patient can fill in adverse events and you would kind of see them, but you don't see the patient, but you are still kind of liable for the treatment. Do you think that this could also increase your workload? Would you like to see this data on a regular basis? What, what's your <laughs> feeling on this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cer certainly this is something that we're still trying to figure out. Like, yeah. workload is certainly going to increase, you know, significantly. I can tell yeah. you that the uh, investigator who's leading this uh, at MGH, uh, you know, he's, he's working a lot more. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's also a sense that, you know, the patient's getting better care. Mm. Um, because they're um, able to stay at home, they can deploy, um, you know, a bunch of different services for the patient at home. And so maybe in the long run, it may save more time because when a patient comes into the emergency room and is, is what we call a train wreck, that is a different level of care and obviously a lot of work for many physicians yeah. um, and care providers. Um, so... So I think it's it's not. I think that's something that has to be worked out. Yes. It's a, I, yes, absolutely. How about the concept of a dashboard and also automated data analytics? Because as and when the data comes along, you know there are modules that help you. Yeah. 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 Whoa. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. I think I think those are the things that help 
that help us. That, you know, we're already doing that on the inpatient side with different types of, mod you know, I mean, cardiology is obviously one of the most advanced where, you know, it would pick up VTAC or these other things. Yeah. Like, that's why we have these monitors on patients. Um, and instead of, you know, someone looking at the strip all the way through, it would say, okay, here are the events. So certainly I think that's, that's, um, that's a, huge, a huge thing. Um, Thank you. So Manuel, if you could just briefly introduce your role. I was at, hoping at to avoid and just ask more questions. Okay. <laughs> just <laughs> so I, I'm um, yeah. Pardon Novartis. I'm very fortunate to have inherited the excellent ah. job that ah. um, yeah. Anand did Thank you. <laughs> <It's an excellent laughs> while he was at Novartis. Okay. So I'm, I'm sort of building upon that. So I lead the novel drug delivery group, but we're mainly focused on, on the discovery end. But I do have another role, which is around innovation, which is uh, a big initiative we have at Novartis as well. And as part of that, I've been fortunate to be involved in a, um, a nice little experiment amongst 15 companies who've got together to uh, look at the area subcutaneous. Now, it's very rare to get 15 big pharmaceutical companies together and, other, and um, other partners. So um, I think it sort of indicates the importance that we see in uh, meeting some specific needs. Beata's part of it and some of the others, Sean is part of it, and other speakers that uh, will be here again about, about is, is also. Um, and um, we're, we are pre-competitive, and the main focus is around meeting and talking about some of the opportunities we feel that are there and some of the barriers that we feel are present with regards to subcutaneous. And um, what we have done is identified amongst the members eight focus areas that we believe there's a big opportunity. Uh, I'm going to go through, this is why I got the piece of paper, because I tend to forget and I'll ramble forever if I don't keep a piece of paper. So one of them is what's something you've already heard of, high dose, high volume. Um, the other opportunities around bioavailability, specifically translation across the species, we see that as a key risk and uh, a great need for us all. And the other one is immunogenicity. There's the patient preference between IV and sub-Q. There's the clinical trial strategy. How do we start implementing some of these things and transition? Um, there's the pair preference aspects, which Mary touched upon. There's the, uh, um, uh, the patient experience. Um, and I can't read my other writing on the, on the other eight ones, so it will come to me at some point or another. But essentially what we're trying to do is figure out ways where we can start um, providing actionable initiatives that will encourage academia and industry to work together proactively. And I hopefully also, you know, the hospitals and the nurses and the pharmacists. Um, we've, um, we, we've actually accomplished a little bit in that we've run a workshop where we also posed the same questions and got validation that these are needs uh, that others have, not just us 15, basically. And this is also why we're here, is to interact with you, uh, to indicate and find out whether this is of interest to you, because we are very open. Um, the group is going to actually be preparing a, um, a publication based upon that workshop around what we identified. So hopefully by the end of the year, there will be 
a publication out there on that particular topic. We also plan another, another publication on the bioavailability. We're going to call it the bioavailability challenge. So it's going to be kind of open challenge. We're going to present what we understand the current state of bioavailability in translation, what we see the, what we see the big gaps are, um, provide examples of where there's disconnects across species and also low bioavailability in humans, and, um, and uh, ask people what, what, they, what can they do about it. What, are, what in vitro essays can we introduce? What ideas do they have? What device options do we have so that we can start interacting? There's going to be another uh, publication that's going to come out with the current state of the art around, around high dose and high volume and also presenting the community and everyone with an open challenge. So we see this very interactive. We're trying to figure out how to do this, we'll be honest with you, so any ideas or suggestions that we can build upon, we'd be really grateful for. But what you're seeing is what we want to do is energize the whole community, because yes. we think it's really important. Yes. Thanks, Manuel. Yeah, for the high-dose <laughs> manuscript, we, we are looking really into novel drug delivery technologies that can enable high-dose subcutaneous administration of biopharmaceutics. So this could be devices. It could also be technologies enabling high concentration solutions. And I also know some of you are working on this. Really not at the moment we can maybe go up to 180, 200 milligram per milliliter in a dosing solutions. But I know there are companies out there looking at going even up to 300 milligram per milliliter or higher. So this is really something we are looking into. And also co-formulation of a dispersion enhancer like hyaluronidase. And taking all of this together, we really aim for really improving administration, ideally with a low volume. But if it's not feasible, having like the patch pump or co-formulation um, opportunities. And um, I think, Manuel, you are dealing also with this challenge that from small molecule, we have the biopharmaceutical classification system somehow predicting with the bioavailability, but we don't have this for large molecules. You want to elaborate a little bit on this? I, I, I guess what we're going to highlight is of our vision. What we would like is in vitro and mechanistic models that help us understand that bio, bioavailability and translation across species, similar to what we have in the small, small molecule area where we're able to separate the, the formulation impact on the solubility, the formulation impact on the kinetic solubility, the permeability aspects, which we know we have, the binding aspects, which we know we have, the degradation, you know, the stability aspects, and other aspects that we can sort of build in the immune response as well. So we'd really like to have, if, you know, if you ask us all, we would really like to have a really good, deeper understanding around the deep science in this particular space. And then once we've got that, we feel that... The community will come up with some of the solutions if we can fully understand what the problems are. This is, I think, what's been very successful in the small molecule arena for oral, and I stress small molecule for oral, <laughs> in that we're able to break down the problem. Once we know what it is, we, we can sort of generally solve the problem. Thanks. Yeah, I was going to ask Manuel, um, have you looked at, um, especially for the subcube availability, the lymph node-based targeting? because lymph node is a key drainage for, yeah, for yeah. The improving the bioavailability. Yeah. Will that be part of your focus area? And also pretreatment, like I think you mentioned uh, hyaluronidase-based pretreatment, which mm -hmm. would really 
amplify the sub, uh, sub-key availability. Yes. Will you be looking at those? We, we will be highlighting those as key parameters and our current understanding of them and the referencing them and also highlighting what we believe the gaps are. Okay. Because you're quite right, there is some absorption, go- the, most of yes. our absorption of the biologics is via that mechanism, but it's not always clear how much the formulation impacts that. Yes. Yeah, and yes. whether we can enhance that even further. Um, because that is an area in oral that we're all interested right. in, is That's that really lymph- fundamental. Yeah, yes. it is, yeah. It's also with respect to immunogenicity. And this is also a focus area for like future work will be done also in this area because of the absorption through the lymphatic system. Okay, so now I come to like the last round of questions and for the last five minutes and um, really going also really from the needs basis and asking Mary and David, what do you think are the future needs for subcutaneous administration? From your perspective, how can we further improve to simplify your life? Um, I think that the, for the subcutaneous delivery, I think the fixed dosing strategy is um, very helpful. It definitely reduces the risk for dosing errors um, compared to our IV um, mixture weight-based dosing. So you minimize, um, you know, calculation errors, technician errors. Um, so I think that from that as, from that aspect, this is very um, important. Um, I think also, you know, talking a little bit about costs and things that we incur um, for the subcutaneous delivery because it's a fixed dose, um, you minimize waste. So that's compared to when in your IV formulation, sometimes patients require, let's say, two and a half vials. So that's like half a vial that's being wasted. Um, So um, another, uh, you know, kind of important implication. And also, I think, you know, patients' quality of life, and I know you'll um, elaborate more. I think when patients are more satisfied because there's uh, reduced treatment um, burden, uh, you know, it tends to increase compliance and meta-adherence and, you know, hopefully improved outcomes um, with, you know, more effective and efficient ways of administering uh, chemotherapeutic agents. Have you seen a product that you really like and you thought, I wish they were all like this? Uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, so, like, for example, currently we use, like, you know, bortezomib, which is a proteasome inhibitor in multiple myeloma. You know, we use mostly the subcutaneous route, and compared to the IV, there's less neuropathy that patients, you know, because they experience less neuropathy, they are more compliant, and then you don't have to take them off therapy or switch therapy. So I think in this situation, I think that those, um, some of the adverse events that may lead to discontinuation, um, you know, with the subcurout, it has been, you know, very advantageous. And, you know, the medications that might, you know, have increased infusion-related reactions, those are medications which I think, like, you know, the subcurout might have, you know, immense value um, at, with patients re- uh, receiving them. Thank you. Yeah, I think from my standpoint, there's like two buckets. There's the bucket of what's, what's going to help patients today. Uh, the bucket of that, I think, you know, you know a new laster or peg filgastrum is an amazing drug from my standpoint. It is, um, there's this issue with insurance that I know Mary knows that drives me insane. Um, because I can't get it to a patient um, the day that they are being discharged, and it's so much easier just to have our nurse deliver it to the patient. Wow. 
but we have to like do this crazy thing where we call FedEx to deliver it to the hospital. We have to then discharge the patient, send them to a separate location, and then administer there for the patient. That's just a waste of a lot of things. Um, so I think you know working with you know insurance and payers on these types of things because clearly on the clinical side from both the MD, the pharmacy, the patients, this is, I feel, unacceptable. Um, and so I think that's, that's a huge area. And that, that's, that's true for a lot of these sub-Q drugs that, for one reason or another, insurance will not pay for it in the inpatient setting. Um, you know, other drugs I think um, that are great are, you know, uh, Lupron for metastatic prostate cancer, um, as well as Octreotide Depot. Uh, these are great drugs. They last a long time, great for uh, patients. So I think the future is really identifying what other drugs can we give like that. Um, you know, in the, uh, I think this is probably going to be more relevant outside of oncology because oncology treatment is somewhat dynamic. Mm. Um, however, you know, sort of sub-Q formulations for some drugs that we can give at home uh, would be like uh, highly effective. Um, I think that in the cancer side of things, it's it's going to be beyond subcute. It's going to be can we deliver things to other places at high doses, um, you know, directly into the tumor, especially in the era of immunotherapy. How do I turn a cold tumor hot? Mm -hmm. um, and that's not going to be a subcute thing necessarily, but certainly if you can deploy a you know, a device onto the tumor, near the tumor, in the lymph node, or if you have lympho-targeting sort of sub-Q drugs, I think that is the future for oncology. Thanks a lot, David. I think this was a great last work that we can take home, really, to see there is a need that what we are doing is really required for patients, for healthcare system. And even so, we develop great new drug delivery systems. We really need to work with insurances, with payers, to really make sure patients get access to those. So with this, I really would like to thank this great panel. It was really very great, excellent to talk to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Pod Drug Delivery Conference. The 2020 meeting will take place October 8th and 9th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.